Hello, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon or evening or whatever time you were able to watch and participate in this class. Uh, it is a joy to have you with us. Of course, this is the virtual setting and we hoped we would never be here again, but unfortunately, uh, due to COVID Delta, we are back in a slightly changed uh, setting. And so right now for this week, we'll be recording this class and then sharing it uh, via our website, Facebook, et cetera. I do want to make a couple of comments on the pandemic really quick. Uh, as you may or may not know, um, I'm a healthcare professional. My specialty is nuclear medicine, which means I study physiology and pathophysiology, meaning physiology, what's supposed to happen in your body, and pathophysiology, what's going wrong with your body. So I've studied COVID a good bit in the last year and a half, and I want to make one quick comment that I hope is going to give you encouragement. There are people of the opinion that this Delta variant is going to be like the first wave we had, the Alpha wave, which happened back in November, December, January, and February for our particular region. Uh, I do not believe that it's going to. And the reason I do not believe it's going to is because though it is growing at a faster rate, I do not believe the virus is going to be able to find people to infect because we now have a number of people in our area that have COVID experience, meaning they either had COVID or they've had the vaccine. So they have those antibodies. Doesn't mean they won't get sick, but the host can't spread, or the virus can't spread near as easily uh, with that natural immunity that the good Lord designed us, designed us with. And so while the rate may be faster, I think the burnout's gonna be faster too. I think this is gonna be more similar to like when the stomach bug comes into a school and it's awful for a couple of weeks and then it just goes right away too. I think, I hope, I pray, that that's the, way, that's the way this one's going to go. So if that encourages you, uh, hopes you feel a little bit better. Uh, that is my opinion on COVID Delta. Wanna, real quick, Delta just means the fourth variant. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, the fourth variant. Doesn't mean that it was developed in some or, or occurred in some weird river region or anything like that. That is not the case at all. And so I just want to make sure we clarify that comment uh, that, the, that for you about the pandemic. I want to applaud the elders. I think they're managing this extremely well. I really appreciate their balanced approach. COVID is not a scriptural issue. No matter how much someone tries to make it, it's not. And I appreciate the fact that we have brothers and sisters that feel one way about it and brothers and sisters that feel another way, but our elders have done a phenomenal job of ministering to the entire body. And I think that's key. I also wanna give a quick shout out to my friend Brent up in the booth right now. He has done more recordings and virtuals in the last year and a half, I assure you than he ever thought he would. And so Brant, thank you for that. And so I wanna set the stage for this class. This class is going to be unique in the fact that I plan to teach it the same way that I would teach a normal Bible class. And so if you've been a part of my class, you know I tend to ask questions and then I wait for you to respond. There's no one in the audience today but Brant and myself. He's got headsets on, so he's not gonna be responding. But my goal is that when I ask those questions, that it lets your brain have a second to think. You know, the Bible talks about reasoning with one another. And I think the way you reason with someone is you ask questions and you have a conversation. The problem with being in a virtual setting is I can't have that conversation with you. You can't respond to me and I can't respond to your thoughts or your inquiries. So if you have any questions or concerns about this lesson, you can text me, call me, et cetera. My, I should be in the the, the church directory, you can find my number there, and we can discuss that. But during class, when I ask a question and pause, don't think that the internet feed broke or is slow. 
It's me giving you a chance to think as we go through uh, roughly the next 30 to 45 minutes together. And so we introduced the topic last week. And the topic for this class, for this entire quarter in the auditorium on Sunday nights, is a study of the life of Christ from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we're doing it in a slightly different way, or a way that I have never seen it done, and I've never taught it myself, but it's going all the way back to Genesis. And it's going back to Genesis 1, where God said, let us make man in our image. And it says he created mankind in his image, and God gave us two functions. Number one, be fruitful and multiply. Number two, have dominion over the creation. Now, what does that mean? We established last week, that does not mean we are given permission to rise, kill, and eat. That is not what Genesis 1 is saying. In fact, we know it's not, because later in Genesis 1, it says the grass and the tree is for the beast of the field and for you. So animals and people weren't eating animals back then. But unfortunately, all that changed. And when sin entered the world, and when sin entered the world, we were no longer God's image. Because see, God is perfect, God is good, God is pure. His thoughts are not evil. But ours became that way. And so while we were supposed to be His image on earth, we were supposed to be God-like on earth, He rules heaven, we were supposed to rule earth, we can no longer do that. And so I made the analogy of a mirror that I, I borrowed uh, from another preacher, and his name is Tyler Gilreath down at Gulf Shores Church of Christ, where we should look like a mirror. And if God was standing in front of the mirror, he should, we should reflect God's image. But we lost that ability because of our sin. We broke the mirror. God didn't break the mirror. We did it. And so we needed a solution. We needed something to, someone to fix the mirror so we could reflect God. And God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who we know created us. He was there in every part of the creation, according to John 1. And we know we are made perfect in Christ, according to James. We know that if we are in His body, washed in His blood, we are sanctified. We are justified. And so that when the Bible talks about you being in Christ's body, that's a really big deal because the Bible says in multiple places, and if you go back and listen to last week's class, the Bible talks about Christ as the exact imprint. He is the image of God. And so if that's the standard we're trying to live to, and we are in His body, when God looks at us because of Christ's blood, He sees a reflection of Christ, not us. And so you will hear me as we go through this class refer to a certain phrase, and that phrase is, we want to do what God would do what God would do, when He would do it, and finally, for the reason or motivation that He would do it. That is being like God. When you do what He would do, when He would do it, and the, for the reason He would do it, you have become the image of Christ or the image of God. Because that's what Christ did. And so we learned in Romans last week, Creation is groaning for the sons of God to return and do their part. And during that, I made an analogy. I talked about how I view keeping fish that are in the keeper size and how my dad views it, and we have a slightly uh, different view. And during that analogy I made, I'm afraid that I may have given the impression that somehow my dad is not 
a good harvester or may waste things. That is not the case. I have never seen him waste anything that he has caught. Uh, I just wanted, I was doing that in a form of analogy, and I have learned over the years as a teacher that because I sometimes use analogies and I use like real life examples, in the interest of time, I don't give all the details, and sometimes the message may get construed wrongly, so I want to clarify that. And that's part of being a man and not being God. I am not perfect. And I have said many times, and I will say it many times in this class, I'm a terrible Christian. Now, why do I say that? Because when I measure myself up against Christ, and I study what He did, when He did it, and why He did it, I rarely, if ever, measure up to His standard. And that's going to be the challenge as we go through this study. I want you to look at your own life and your own body and be honest with yourself. It is amazing how hard that is to really look at your own thoughts and really know your own personality and look back and say, would I have done what Jesus did when He did it? But most importantly, for the reason He did it. And I'm afraid you might come to the conclusion that I did, that I'm not a good Christian, because I don't measure up. But I'll go back to James. We are made perfect in Christ. And so that is the good news. All of us can obtain that. And so I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. And we're going to start in verse 63. Again, that's Luke Chapter 22, verse 63. So for the next three weeks, if you go to this class in the auditorium, you're going to know something. And that is the first thing we are looking at is the cross. Because there's a part of the Bible that says he was obedient to the point of death. That's a really big deal. That's actually the first step where I'm not sure I would measure up if ever truly given that test. If I'm really honest with myself, is my faith that strong? I hope it is, but I also hope I never have to find out. Three weeks at the cross. We're going to view it like this. We're going to view it on the way to the cross, on the cross, and at the conclusion of the cross. That's three weeks. It's going to wear you out. It is emotionally taxing. It is not an easy subject to talk about. It's not an easy subject to teach, but we will get through it. Because there are so many lessons that happen at the cross, on the way, on the cross, and at the end of the cross, that I think sometimes we miss, because it's a subject that, to be frank, we don't like to talk about, because we know it's our fault. It was our sins that hung him there. And so when we look through this, let's look past that, and let's go into what exactly did Jesus do? When did he do it? And why did he do it? And see how you measure up. So what I want you to do, my challenge for you, is get your head in the spot that I am actually Jesus. I'm in his position. This is what I'm being asked to do as a Christian. Would you have passed the test? So let's go. To set the stage, Jesus has done the Last Supper. He has told Judas what you do, go do quickly. And he has been arrested. Now, he actually performed a miracle at his arrest that still perplexes me how that mob continued doing what they were doing. That's what we call mob mentality. People just act without thinking. They saw a miracle, and yet they still arrested the man. 
He is now before the Sanhedrin, or the rulers of the Jews. Now, these are people that have supposedly studied the prophecies. We know they have seen the signs and miracles, and they should have been the first group to acknowledge Christ. That's the group that Jesus has charged back in the Old Testament, because we know Jesus was the Word. And we know what the priests were charged to do. They were to basically carry out the work of the church before Jesus came. They should have been his biggest allies. And they ended up being his biggest enemies. So make sure you set that stage. Someone that you put in a position of authority. Someone that you charged with doing something. Someone that you created has now the ability to do something to you. And what they do is evil. What would your response be? Would you carry out God's will? Because that's what He told you to do. How would you measure up? So let's look at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him as they beat Him. So let's get this straight. It's not enough to slap Him in the face. It's not enough to hit Him in the face. They have to mock him while they're doing it. And by the way, he is tied up. What a bunch of cowards. This man had the ability, because he was God on earth, at that exact moment, 10,000 angels could have shown up and taken care of business. We know just before this in the garden, an angel showed up to minister to him, to give him final strength before this moment. He could have called that one angel back. But he's getting hit in the face. He's getting mocked. What would you have done? That's the first question. Then verse 64, they also blindfolded him. They took the man of light, the father of lights, and they took away his, eye, his ability to see. They took away his light. They put him in darkness in a physical sense by blindfolding him. They removed his vision and kept asking him, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now I want you to stop right there. He knew the name of every person that hit him in the face. He knew the name of their fathers. He knew the name of their moms, their children, if they had any. He knew the motivations in their heart. And he kept his mouth shut. Would you have? Now... We're not even to Pilate yet. And I'm already telling you, Jonathan Farr isn't measuring up. I am deeply behind. Probably because I would have taken action back, and I sure enough would have said, you hit me, fill in the name. But it's okay, your granddaddy hit the prophets too. That's what Jonathan Farr would have done. But see, I'm not Jesus. That wasn't part of what his mission was. Because, see, there was a prophecy that said he opened not his mouth, and so he didn't open up his mouth here. That's obedience to the point of death. Verse 66. When day came, so this is during the night, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, in other words, if you're really God, if you're really the Savior, which, by the way, they saw the signs. They knew that. Tell us 
But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Now he did something there. He responded, but there was no rancor or aggression or any of that. He just basically told them the truth. It doesn't matter what I say. This is about to happen. And so we look in verse 69. It says, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Did he lie to them? Nope. He did not. We know at this point that Christ is literally less than 24 hours from fulfilling his mission on earth. He knew he was fixing to be at the right hand of God. He knew the sun was fixing to start shine, stop shining. He knew the earth was going to shake. And he told them, this is what's fixing to happen. This was their response. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said, you say that I am. Now, I think I have misunderstood that for a long time. I think what he's saying is, the very fact that you are doing to me what you are doing to me, according to the prophecies, proves that I am him. Because no one else has been treated like this. No one else has been good, but beyond good, perfect, and taken a beating for nothing like this, and what's about to happen. He says, your actions, I believe what he's saying here is, your actions are going to say that I am he. In other words, you're going to do it for me. You're going to prove my case. They got the message. They, they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So they think they have a reason to kill him at this point. But unfortunately, they don't have the power in their current government. So they run to the Roman government. Verse, and then we get to chapter 23. It says, then the whole company, the whole group, arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation. Okay, how did he do that? And forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Really? Y'all are now fans of Caesar? And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him. So that's the scene. They're up here, and this is like a bunch of kids that have just gotten in a fight, and the parents trying to figure out what actually happened. And he wants to get both sides of the story. So he turns and he looks at Jesus. There's a mob with Jesus. Jesus is over here, face all bloodied up, bruised up, like he's been in a fight because they've been punching him all night, telling him to prophesy. Pilate looks over at him, not apparently a very impressive specimen at this point. He looks at him and he goes, Are you the king of the Jews? Now you really have to understand Roman history to appreciate this question. But I imagine Pilate was mocking at the highest point the chief priest and the scribes that were in that group when he asked that question to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And we hear that statement again in verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Now we see the politician of Pilate. Because Pilate can't find a reason that Jesus deserves to die. I mean, can you? He hasn't actually done anything on here. But he hears a word, Galilee. And he happens to know that one of his enemies 
a fellow politician that he does not think very highly of is in the same town right now because he heard the word Galilee, and that meant something to Pilate. So let's see what happens. Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked where the man was a Galilee, and he's like, so you from Galilee? That's how we would say it. Are you from South Prentice or North Prentice? Put it in our terms. There he was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, okay, this now is someone else's problem. Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. It's an odd response from a Roman. Why did Herod want to see Jesus? I mean, logically, that makes no sense. Unless he was a Christian, which we know he was not. Why do you want to see Jesus? Let's not forget he was a Roman. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Homan was a, Herod was a Roman, and he was wanting to be entertained. Kind of like a lot of us Americans nowadays. He just wanted to see something. Poor Herod didn't realize he was going to see a lot that day. Just a few hours from then, he was going to feel the earth shake. He was going to see the sun stop shining. Death people were going to come out of the ground and prophesy. The bell of the curtain was going to get torn into. That was going to be an eventful day. Herod was going to get exactly what he wanted, but he didn't get it right that second. Verse 9, it says, So he questioned him at some length, but he, being Jesus, made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Now again, think back if you have kids. Have you ever had two kids get in a fuss or an argument, and neither one will be quiet long enough so you can figure out what's going on? That's what's going on here, except one of them is literally not talking. Jesus isn't saying a word, and they're just constantly saying what all he did. Here's the deal. In life, if you have to scream to get your way, you're probably on the wrong side of the argument. I'm going to say that again. If you have to scream and prevent the other side from talking, you are probably on the wrong side of the argument. They were screaming vehemently, making accusations against Jesus, and they were without a doubt on the wrong side of the argument. Verse 11, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Herod wanted to be entertained. Jesus didn't do a sign for him, wouldn't even talk to him. And so Herod begins to treat him with contempt. And Herod plays a trick on Jesus, or not really a trick, but more does something incredibly offensive to Jesus. Then arraign him in splendid clothing. Because remember, the biggest accusation right now is he is the king of the Jews. Arrayed him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. So let's get that scene in our mind. We don't know exactly when it says contempt and mocked if there was additional beatings, but there is sure enough belief or enough that I think there probably was. And Herod decides to have a little fun. It's kind of like a cat playing with a mouse. The cat can kill the mouse anytime he wants to, but he wants to play around with it for a little bit before he kills it. So what's happening here? And Pilate sent Herod this problem, and Herod basically played along, throws a purple robe and dresses up the mouse, so to speak, and kicks it back to Pilate. This next verse is one that I don't know why I have never really noticed. I mean, I have, I have taught the crucifixion. I've taught this part many, many times. But this verse never jumped out at me the way it does now. 
Because you've got to put yourself in that mindset. We know that no authority exists on earth unless it's given by God. So again, you're Jesus. You're getting literally dressed up and mocked by someone you allow to have power. Would you have kept your mouth shut? Would you have kept your army of angels behind you, who I'm sure were a little upset about this too? Would you have kept them at bay? Would you have been obedient to the point of death? Verse 12. I, I just want to make sure you hear this, because it's, it's literally mind-blowing. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. I want that to soak in with you for just a second. Right here in the middle of the path to the cross, you have two political rivals that have now bounced this problem back and forth like they're passing a basketball. Pilate is the senior of the two in terms of a power. And he doesn't like Herod, and Herod apparently doesn't like him. But Pilate found it amusing that Herod dressed up the king of the Jews and sent him back. If you make friends by treating other people poorly, again, you are probably on the wrong side of the argument. These two became friends because they belittled mocked and ultimately crucified your Savior. That's what their friendship was based on. I just want that to really, really sink in. And how I had missed verse 12 for so many years, I have no idea. I guess you're just reading past it kind of fast, but there it is. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. In other words, the two people in charge, the two bosses, don't find a thing wrong with Jesus. Now look, y'all beat him all night. Herod's done treating him poorly, dressed him up as your king, and sent him back to me. Verse 15, for he sent him back to us, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. In other words, Pilate, a Roman, a Gentile, who does not have regard for human life, saw more reason to keep Jesus alive than the very people that Jesus descended from. And he tells them that there's, there's nothing here you would think at this point, if you were Jesus, you would at least speak up and go, it's about time someone sees it my way. He didn't say a word. He was like a lamb on the way to be slaughtered. Verse 16, I will therefore punish and release him. In other words, Harry, excuse me, Pilate is now negotiating with the crowd. And that's the thing about mobs. You can't reason with unreasonable people. And this is a mob. They are no longer thinking as human beings. They're thinking as a group think, and that is a dangerous place to be. And what we have here is Pilate trying to negotiate with this mob. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Y'all are upset. I understand. You don't like the guy. I'm a Roman. We are really good at inflicting pain. 
You let me punish him, and I'm going to send him on his way, and, and it'll all be over with. Now, we know from another text that Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. He knew that in the back of his mind, so he's still trying to get a plea or at least make a negotiation where this problem can just go away. He sent it to, he sent it to Herod, it came back. He just wants it to go away. He says, come on, let me punish him. It's all good. He probably said it with a grin, a little bit of arrogance, because you know he was a powerful Roman ruler in Jerusalem. What'd they say? But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. Now, we get a click of note about Barabbas. He was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city. In other words, he started a riot or an uprising in the city and for murder. He killed somebody. We don't know who. Could have been a Roman, could have been a Jew. We don't know. But that's who they asked for. We're Barabbas, by the way, in this story. We are the person imprisoned in, in by our sins that by Jesus' obedience gets released. That's us. Now, you may have never murdered anybody. I get that. But that's us. That's the one. Verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more. Now, they, they, they said Barabbas, and Pilate knows that's not the guy he wants out of prison. Barabbas is a problem maker. And politicians do not like problem makers. So Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Verse 21, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 22, a third time he said to them, and you can almost hear the exhaustion in Pilate's voice at this point, why? What evil has he done? I found, have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. He's almost telling them, like, I promise you, I'll make it bad. He may never walk again when I get done with him. I mean, the Romans were good at a terrible thing. You're Jesus, and this evil Roman is the only person defending you right now. Would you have spoken up in defense? Would you have opened up your mouth? That's what Jesus did when he was doing it, and his motivation was to be obedient to the prophecy. Verse 23, But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and verse 25 is a key verse. He says, He released the man, that's Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. We get released from hell because of our sins, because of what Jesus is about to do. Barabbas got out of prison because of what Jesus was about to do. For whom they asked, but he, del he delivered, and this part of the verse, Jesus over to their will. Think of a prayer that we oftentimes say. Not our will, but your will or thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This may have been God's plan, but human beings actually delivered the punishment that was due other human beings. Because it says he delivered them over to their will. And they at this point were being controlled by the God of the earth, that is Satan, not the God of heaven, even though they were the chosen people. 
verse 26, we are introduced to a new character. But because we're staying in Luke and not bouncing across all four of the Gospels, of course, this is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John. But because we're staying in Luke, I just want to add a couple of commentaries here. We know at this point that Jesus was taken to the side and he was flogged. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But he was also beaten in the head repeatedly with a reed. Now, I'm not going to go through this in gross detail from the standpoint of, I think that has been done enough times, but I want to make sure I do explain what actually happened to his body, because I think the next part of the story doesn't quite bear the significance unless we go through that for just a second. But again, as I'm describing this, would you do what Jesus did when he did it for the motivation with which he was doing it? So let's start with the read. He has been punched multiple times throughout this day as he was mocked. Have you ever hit your elbow on something or your knee and you have a bruise? And then a few hours later, you hit it again? What happens to the pain threshold when that happens? It goes up. Why does it go up? Because your body has already sent inflammation there. It's already turned the nerves on. It's already sent blood there. It's engorged with swelling because it's trying to fix the damage. That's what our immune systems are designed to do. Our immune systems are designed to fight. Jesus still had one at this point. So his face is bruised, swollen, etc., from the beating the Jews gave him, possibly the beating the Herod gave him. And they start hitting him with that reed. It says multiple times. This is contusions on top of contusions. That is when I would have stopped. I wouldn't have gone any further. But it went further. This flogging I don't know that I can really do it justice with just words. So I'm just going to tell you the end result so you understand the next portion of what we're going to cover. The end result of the flogging, without giving each individual beating, would have been the skin of his back would have been completely removed along with probably the upper portion of the muscle. Now, blood would have been flying through this. Now, you know if you've ever been slapped in the back or hit in the back, that is a very sensitive area. I believe the reason that area is so sensitive is because it is protecting that spinal cord that runs down your back. All those nerves come out of it. It's a very important part of your body, and God designed you to protect that area of your body. And so that area has been ripped clean by the Romans. Now, the Jews would stop at 40 minus 1. The Romans had no such rule. They quit hitting when they got tired. But remember, there is a group of soldiers doing this, not just one. And so as they have removed the skin from his back, probably all the way to the point that the muscles, those thinner muscles on the bottom of the, of the, bottom of the rib cage, 
there is a very high likelihood you could have seen the internal portion or cavity of Christ's back. In other words, his organs may have been visible when they got done with him. He got no anesthesia, no numbing, and that's what happened to his back. Now, he also had a crown of thorn on his head during this time, too, which was not the type of thorns we have around here, and thorns around here will cut you to pieces. These were like those one-and-a-half, two-inch-long thorns. See, that blood had to be released from his body because we sinned. See, we're the ones that were supposed to be punished, but Jesus is the one having to endure it. I doubt, seriously, you have ever been through anything in your life, now you may have, that would compare to this point in Jesus' path to the cross, the direction to the cross. But if you have, get yourself in that mental state. And then they walk you out to the street and they throw a beam on your back. Now this is not a 2x4, this is not a 4x4, this is probably closer to a railroad tie because it was designed to hold a man on top of it. Now this thing was cut down for the sole purpose of putting you on it. It was not sanded, it was not smooth, and it was not painted, and it sure enough wasn't made of gold like the ones hanging around your throat, around your neck. You don't have any skin on your back because the Romans just got done taking it all off with their flatula or their, or their flogging system. And that thing gets thrown on your shoulders. You haven't slept all night because the Jews arrested you in the middle of the night before you went to sleep. You cried so hard, sweated drops of blood came out of your head in the garden. And now this thing gets thrown on his back and it's the ninth hour. And you have to walk this to the hill called Golgotha, or the skull, where they're now going to nail you to it. And we know that Jesus fell underneath the cross. He could not carry it. Now, he had carried wood many times in his life. How do I know that? Because he was a carpenter's son. But he couldn't do this one. I asked the question, would you do what he did, when he did it, for the motivation he did it, or would you have been like me and checked out a long time ago? He falls beneath the load. He is at the point of physical pain, loss of blood, an inflammatory process that your body does. He can barely walk. And so we get to verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him his cross to carry it behind Jesus. So in other words, Jesus was not allowed. They didn't carry Jesus. He still had to get up and move, even though he was at the point he couldn't go any further. And Simon is behind him carrying the cross. This mob of people, this mob of people is screaming, crucify him. Now, I'm going to make a quick parallel that I hope doesn't waste a whole lot of time, but I want to make a point. We know this is happening on Passover weekend. The other side of town, there is blood of lambs filling the streets because the priests are over there cutting the throats of lambs that have no chance of saving their life. 
And on the other side of town, where the Romans are, the blood of the Lamb is being spilled to actually save the Jews that are trying to save themselves on the other side of town. And I don't know that you've ever put the two things happening at the exact same time, but there was no coincidence that this happened on Passover weekend. And so as Jesus falls beneath the load, he's now been stood back up. I don't think he can really see very well at this point. From both the sweat, the blood, the beatings, etc. He's also got a crown of thorns on his head that inhibits his vision. He's been hit so many times, his eyes are swollen. He's trying to get through this crowd to get to the end of this. And verse 27 is very unique. It says, And they and there followed him a great multitude of the people. And here we get a switch. And of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. I find this section of scripture remarkable. The 12 apostles, of course, Judas is already dead at this point, I believe. The 11 remaining apostles ran when he was arrested. Peter came in there for a minute, denied Christ three times, then he took off. We know John showed up at some point because he was at the cross at the end. And there's a lot of people that believe Mark was there because Mark's gospel records a man having his clothes torn off of him and running away naked. And most people say that was Mark. We don't know that. That person's not mentioned. That was his group of best friends, and they're not there. But this group of women are mourning and lamenting over Christ. They are his true disciples. And this is a moment on the path to, crawl, on the, path to the cross that I don't think we teach near often enough because it shows compassion at a moment in Jesus's life where he literally had no business dishing it out they should have been crying for him because what he was going through was terrible but let's look and see what happens but turning to them Jesus said, now I'm just going to stop right there. Jesus is walking to the cross. Simon of Cyrene is behind him, and it tells us there's a group of women that are lamenting over him. This group of soldiers is forcing Jesus down this road. And all of a sudden, Jesus just stops the whole parade, the whole shenanigan, and does an about-face remember they were behind him it says they were following him he turns around this way and talks to them this part of the, the story completely astounds me it reminds me of when jesus was pushed up against the ledge and it says he just walked through their midst and they didn't see him because they were fixing to push him over the cliff it's like all of a sudden jesus is in complete control of this whole scenario which by the way he was the whole time but he stops and he turns around. My question for you is, if you had been beaten to the point and ridiculed and betrayed to the point Jesus was, would you have stopped and turned around to talk to somebody? 
that was sad over you? I wouldn't. I don't measure up. But let's look at what Jesus did when he did it and for the motivation that he did it. Let's look at this because it's very, very important. He said to them in verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. In other words, it's almost like he's saying, I am fine. And you know he's not. He says, don't weep for me. You need to weep for yourselves and your children. Why, Jesus? Why do they need to weep for themselves and for their children? He's fixing to tell them, verse 29, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. They want a mountain to fall on them? That sounds like a pretty terrible place to be. And to the hills cover us. I'm going to stop before I get to verse 31. That's where we're going to conclude tonight. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He is talking about the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. And it was on his mind about what was going to happen to these people when he wasn't on earth anymore and a physical being. And he knew what the Romans were going to do to Jerusalem. They were going to literally melt it to the ground to the point a stone was not left on another stone. The temple was going to be destroyed and the entire Jewish history was going to be burned. And thousands of Jews were going to die. And he said, it's going to be so bad that you're going to wish a mountain would fall on you. But how bad the Romans are about to treat you. Now, what we know from secular history is because Jesus gave this warning and a previous warning that when the Romans showed up the first time, the Christians fled. They got out of the city. When the Romans showed up the second time, the people left in the city did not survive. Why is that important? Because Jesus was taking care of his church in the middle of his death. Now again, what would you do? Would you have stopped to think, you know what, in somewhere between 30 and 40 years, you're going to have a really bad day. You better get out of this city and turn around and talk to these people. Not me. I'm so self-absorbed, I would have kept going. All I would have been thinking about was, let's get this over with. I'm ready to go to heaven. I'm ready to be on the right side of God. I am sick with human beings. That's where I would have been. Aren't you glad Jesus came instead of me? Let's look at verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now let's think through that analogy real quick. The wood is green. Is he talking about the cross on Simon's back? No. What is he talking about? When you first cut down a tree, the lumber is green. It has to dry. If you're a carpenter, you know you can't use wet wood. It has to dry out first because if you use wet wood, it's going to bend and bow and do all sorts of crazy things, and whatever you build with is not going to stand. It's too early in the process. Now, the wood is good, but it can't be used yet. If he's talking about firewood, it won't burn. What is he talking about? What he's talking about is himself. 
He's basically saying, I am the tree, I'm the way, I'm the fruit, I'm the way, the vine, if you will. And he's saying, if they're going to do this to me with me on the earth, in front of them in the city, what will they do when I'm not here? And let me tell you, it was awful. Jerusalem was destroyed. But on the path to the cross, Jesus stopped multiple times. Times that he probably would have been totally understandable if he had said, told some Jew, oh, you were the one that hit me. Or he had stopped some Roman for hitting him. Or he could have called 10,000 angels and destroyed the world. But he didn't. And he didn't have to stop to talk to the women behind him. But he did. So you are a follower of Christ, or we hope you are. As you look at the path to the cross, would you do what Jesus did in all of those instances? Would you do those things when he did them? But more importantly, are you obedient to the point of death that you would follow God's will regardless of what's happening here on earth? We're not getting beaten. We're not getting flogged. We're getting scourged with the virus. And if you use that as an excuse not to serve God, I told you I'd pause every once in a while. That was one of them. When our peace gets shaken from us, we tend to get scared. Next week, we're going to go over the cross because there are multiple examples that occur on the cross, path behind all of this, where again, how did he do it? Why did he do it? And would you have done it? That we're going to look is, are you the image of God? Do you reflect Jesus in your daily life? I'm sad to say, I know most of you are going to be a lot like me and realize you just don't quite measure up. And you're thankful that you do still have hope. Because in Christ, that blood that we just talked about being shed, it washes you continuously. And once you're in His hand, according to Jesus, nothing can take you out of it. And that is an awesome thing. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope next week we are in person in class. We will see. I hope you and yours stay healthy. And I hope you enjoyed this class. If you have any questions or comments for me, feel free to send them to us. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon.